0: I think by virtue of being created in God's image uh, and due to the sin and the fallenness in this world, we find ourselves with this, this God-shaped hole in our heart. And many people live their lives trying to fill this God-shaped hole. See, because sin has wedged a hole and it's wedged in between our relationship with God and this hole is created and so people pursue these things and maybe we've all, I'm sure, have pursued things to try and fill this hole. And it's a God-shaped hole. There's no amount of alcohol. There's no amount of success, no amount of work. No amount of money, no amount of relationships that can fill that God-shaped hole. I mean, we can wedge it in and it'll fit for a minute, which is why it feels good. And anyone who says sin is, doesn't feel good, it obviously has never sinned. Uh, it feels good and it wedges in and it feels right and it, and it fills us up for a second. But eventually, it, it it loses its shape. That thing that we've crammed into our God-shaped hole and it begins to cause like it like our hearts choking, and it begins to choke our hearts, and we wonder why. And we don't sleep or we're miserable or we lack peace or we lack joy. And it's because it's a God-shaped hole. And only faith in Christ and a life surrendered to Him and that follows Him can fill that hole. Because that's the God-shaped hole. And to do that, we got to come home running. And that's why we can come home running. No matter what's in that hole, no matter what we wedge, we can come home running. And God, through His Spirit in His own way, will kick whatever is in that hole out that doesn't belong. And at times that'll be painful because we have things we like in that hole now. And God will have to wedge that out and fill that up for us. And I don't know where you are, maybe that's you this morning. And, and I know sometimes we sing these songs and we sing these songs of declaration and praise as if we all really mean that, right? Like as if we all really came here hungry for God. I realize that some of us didn't come here hungry for God. We came here hungry for something though. And that song is saying what's going to fill that hunger is God. There's a reality that Christianity spreads best not through force, but through fascination. Fascination with who God is and what He's done in Christ. That Christianity is going to spread best not through coercion or through persuasion or through force, but Christianity, this life of faith, is going to actually spread best when His people, when God's people are fascinated. When we're really fascinated, when we're overwhelmed, when we look weirder than we already are, Because of who God is and what He's done in Christ. And when you think about the Gospels, you find this perhaps to be true. I mean, why did people flock to Jesus? Did they flock to Jesus because of His message? Because of who He is? Did they flock to Jesus because of the fact that His life lined up with this message, this world that He proclaimed? that was made available, he called it the kingdom of God, this world made available where the love and the rule and the righteousness of God has been presented to anyone who will just receive it? Did people flock to him because they were persuaded or forced? I think people flocked to him because they were fascinated. They were fascinated that Jesus had something to say. He had something to say that religion wasn't saying. He had something to say that a broken world wasn't saying. He had something to say that a government wasn't saying. Were they flocking to him because of that, or were these people flocking to him because their lives didn't line up with the world he was proclaiming? You had these broken people, you had these business people, you had these fishermen, you had these marginalized people, you had these sinful people, you had these people who were pursuing all these different things, and Jesus was proclaiming this message, and I believe that it fascinated them because their lives didn't line up with this message he was proclaiming. When Jesus was saying that there's this world has been made available to anyone who will come, no matter where you've been and what you've done, this world, this life, this reality is made available to you, It's called the kingdom of God, where the rule and the reign and the love of God can be known and, yes, felt in your life, no matter where you've come from. You don't have to go to rabbinical school. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Hebrew. You don't have to know English. You don't have to know anything other than the fact that your life doesn't line up with this world that Jesus is proclaiming. And people, I believe, were fascinated with that, and people flocked to him for that. When you think about the book of Acts, why did the church grow? Because they had great preachers and great programs? I think the church grew when you look at Acts 2 because there was a fascination with this life they had with God. It was a fascination so gripping that they were willing to sell everything they had. And they were willing to take place in this sort of, and I'm going to use this word, but this sort of voluntary socialism. This sort of, I choose to give up my things for you. I choose that what is mine is yours and what is yours is mine. That is my choice. And I'm going to sell this because you don't have, and I'm going to give you what you don't have. You don't have grace, I'm going to give you grace. You don't have mercy, I'm going to show you mercy. You're living in a world bent down by injustice. I'm going to pursue a world of justice on your behalf. That's what Acts 2 says the community of God's people did. And they didn't go to church once a week. They were together. They really were wrestling with what it meant to be the church and not doing church. And they were fascinated with this salvation, with this life lived in the kingdom of God. Because no one knew their lives better than them. They were fascinated that despite their secret sin and their brokenness and their hopelessness, that God would reach down and crash into their present and offer them a fascinating life that would last forever. And as a result, Acts 2 says, the whole the area was fascinated It says that they had favor with all the people, that there was once a time where Christians were liked by other people. And people flocked to them. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There was a fascination that swept through the world. And it was a fascination with this God of heaven and earth that invited all people to come in. The people of God were a gospel people. And they embraced a the gospel posture. And they proclaimed this sort of gospel message. And I would suggest that it's because they understood their gospel position. And that's what we're going to talk about this is a gospel position. What is this gospel position that gripped these people to love God, to love people, and to follow Jesus in public? Not just in private, not just in a building, or not just in a synagogue, or not just in a house, but loving God, putting skin on that, showing people what that looks like, not just talking. Loving people, putting skin on that, showing people what that actually feels like and looks like, not just talking. And following Jesus, not in just song and prayers and communion and and message, but following Jesus in public. What caused them to do that? And I have to believe that it was their gospel position. They knew their position. And I believe they probably understood this verse that we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to work through it. And we're, going to, we're going to camp out in the book of Romans. We'll flip over to Ephesians one time. Okay, I want to lay out a caveat. When I teach, I normally don't go through this many Scripture. Right, I use Scripture. Um, so don't, that guy said he doesn't use the Bible. But I normally don't just sweep us through, all right? So, um, but it all, has one, it all has one trajectory, so you shouldn't, shouldn't get lost. Hopefully, we won't chase rabbits. If we do, I'll shoot it, and we'll get back on course. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Before we actually dive into this text, I'd like for us to pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you. And God, to really consider your love and your grace is just fascinating that you, a holy God, a holy, righteous creator of all, one who doesn't have to answer to anyone, would look down on us in mercy and grace and love us anyway. And you wouldn't just leave us where we are, but you change us and make us more like you to know you better and more fully. Father, we ask that you continue to be here this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes that we may see. need you to. We ask that you would open our ears that we may hear. We ask that you would open our minds with all the chaos swirling in it, that you would open our minds that we may understand and think clearly. And that you would open our hearts that we may feel the invitation extended to all of us through this gathering, through this time, through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, sort of a turning word. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ, Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul starts off and he says, therefore. And so to really wrestle with what this text and where this text is coming from, we need to understand what it's there for. We need to go back. So we're going to have to go back to really understand what Paul is trying to say. Because Paul is making a strong statement when he says, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh. Two great words. God did. God did. What you and I can't do, God did. What you and I couldn't do, God did. There's no way to really read around this. But we need to understand that what he's saying is actually what he's saying. When I was associate minister about my second year of ministry, I remember studying just this, this whole idea of gospel position and call it that. And I remember my dad came in. They had just started attending the church I was serving, they'd just moved into town from Albany, Georgia, to Columbus, Georgia. <laughs> My dad is a preacher's son, and he was a deacon. And uh, my granddad, my dad's dad, is actually a missionary in South Africa. And his two brothers are preachers. My dad's sort of the, the non-preaching guy. He's a, a, direct, a director of uh, sales for, for Lance Snack Foods. and So he didn't take up the, the preaching work. And, but he's raised in the church. He even spent time, grew up a lot of his time in South Africa. Spent his life immersed in church work. My granddad was a tireless man going into the bush of South Africa, reaching the natives with the gospel. And so if anybody would have understood you know, church and, and life in and Christ, it, you would think it would be my dad. And My dad's a good man. He's a real good man. He's always been a good man. I remember asking him, Dad, if you were to die tonight, Do you know if you'd really be with Jesus? And my dad's answer was shocking to me. He said, Well, I hope so. But I guess I'd have to see. I remember thinking, Is that it? Like, where's the peace that the Bible speaks of? how do you have peace and I don't know? How do you have joy and I don't know? Now, I, the Bible says that we can have this, right? It says we can have joy and peace, and I thought, how can you have joy and peace and I don't know? How can you be sold out to I don't know? How can you give your life away, risk your life for I don't know? How do you have hope? Biblically defined, which is desire plus confident expectation that God is going to do it. It's not. I hope William and Mary wins. They did win. Uh, it, just a plug. It's it's a confident expectation. How do you how do you have peace in that? And I remember thinking because I'm not that smart, and and you'll figure this out soon. But I remember I was reading gospels and I was reading. And I was really fleshing out the New Testament best I knew how. And I was reading Old Testament. And I was thinking, okay, if there's one thing I'm starting to understand is I've had the same view of my dad that if I died, I, I hope I would go to heaven. Even though I've, I've, you know, surrendered my life to Christ, been baptized into Christ, I would, I would hope I go to heaven. But, but I just, you know, I don't know for sure because I could, you know, sin and 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 die and and then have to deal with the consequences of that sin before God and not be declared holy and you know innocent and all. All these things. I remember asking my granddad just a year before. You know, do you believe that that if you were to die, you go to heaven? And and he said, you know, he said the same thing. He said, I hope I would. And and I said, so if you're telling me then that if I if I'm walking down the street and I stub my toe and I say a cuss word and I get hit by a bus and I stand before the Lord, we love these hypotheticals in, in Christianity, where we you know, well, if you're in a desert with no water, you know, and, and, and if I if that happened. You know, what would happen to me and my, my granddad, you know, he didn't give me a, a, an answer. And I thought, you know, I've been reading about a joy and a peace that we're supposed to be able to have. And I don't, it just doesn't stir up a lot of joy. And i tell you, it didn't stir up a lot of fascination. My dad was in a somewhat of a hopeless position at that time. Hopeless, really biblically defined hopeless we've all been in hopeless positions we've all found ourselves in these strange positions to where we realize that there's there's possibly no hope or the outcomes not looking good and my dad had staked his claim in a faith that is real that is eternal that can give birth to hope and peace but he struggled To have hope. Here's what I know. That I know that I know that I know. Without Jesus Christ. Without the gospel. We are hopeless. And we are locked. In a hopeless position. But with Jesus Christ. And an imperfect. Broken human being. But a faith placed in him. Our position is changed. And we have to learn to live from that position. But in ourselves and in our own strength and through our own performance, and please hear this, in your own performance for God, in my own performance, in my own work for God, we are completely and utterly hopeless. Romans chapter 3, here's what Romans 8 is there for. And we're going to work through this. Paul has been working through this idea to the Jews that the Jews, though they were the chosen people of God, they were no more special than those who weren't Jews. He called them Gentiles. That the Gentiles in their own way and in their own economy with God had a chance with God. And so Paul is trying to get rid of this sort of racism and classism and elitism that Christianity had found, even at this point. This elitism that led to legalism and moralism, a lot of isms there. But this 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 elitism that said, because we were God's chosen people in the beginning, we're better than them, and and we are we are we are certainly more right than they are, and Paul's trying to come against this. And he says, What then? Paul even said, What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. Is real encouraging. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. You think he's trying to get the point across. Their throat is an open grave. Ouch. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He is not being gentle. Paul is not curt. He's not curtsying and telling them something. He is is delivering the strong message that there's no one, no Jew, no Gentile, no one, who in themselves and of themselves are even remotely good enough to come before holy God. He says, verse 19. Now we know. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law. The law he's talking about is the working out of the Old Testament, the working out of the Ten Commandments. You know, don't lie, have no other gods before me, that thing. He says, now we know that whatever the law speaks, says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to the To God's judgment. For no flesh, please look at this no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be set apart. No flesh will be justified in his sight by the works of what? The law. For through the law comes what? Comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, no matter how many good things anyone ever does, God, I have never lied. Okay, just, just real quick. All right. Just real quick. Raise your hand if you have ever lied. Raise your hand. Come on. All right, for those who didn't, you know what you just did. <laughs> so now you can raise your hand. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand. That's his point. He's saying... That because God said, thou shalt not lie, what do we now know? That lying is what? Bad. It is wrong. It is therefore a sin. Because God said it's not good. He said it's wrong. We know it's wrong. When we do it, we we, we know then that we did something that was wrong. So with the law came this knowledge of sin. And so what he's trying to say is, you can't be good enough. You can't do good enough things to be acceptable before God, no matter what your theology has ever been, no matter what heritage we any of us have. God is saying here that according to the law, when you look at rights and wrongs and rules and regulations, there's nothing you can do to keep them perfectly. Therefore, you and I will always stand before God guilty unless he does something about We can't climb ourselves out of that hole. We're incapable of pleasing God no matter what. Even our best good pales in comparison to God's best good or his worst good because there is no worse than best for God. God is just simply good, and he's holy. He's other, completely other, and he's love, and he's righteousness, and we just aren't. If you read verse 5 of this text in chapter 3, Paul actually makes that point. He highlights, he says that our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness. It magnifies God's righteousness. And So because God is holy, because he's perfectly good, and because we're not, we're in a hopeless position. And so our hearts are just caught up in this whirlwind. And for those who are in Christ, our hearts are often caught up in this whirlwind of performance. Like my dad, where his salvation is based more in his performance and based less than Christ's performance for him. And so because his faith was placed more in his performance for God, he knew better, he knew his own life, just like we do. He knew that it fell short of God's law, of God's work, of God, what God said is right and wrong and good and holy and bad and all those things. And so it left dad, my dad, and it's left so many of us in this, this whirlwind of we have joy and then we don't have joy or we have peace and then we don't have peace. And so then we don't live out something that's fascinating to the world because we're not free. We're trapped. We're trapped in the hope of our own performance and obedience. And so Paul continues and he says, verse 21, But now, apart from the law, aside from the law, despite the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith. In Jesus Christ, to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Black, white. There's no distinction. Male, female, Jew, Gentile. Really good and moral are not good and moral. Murderer, thief, honest, chaste. There's no distinction. All have fallen short. Verse 24. But these, they are justified freely. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint... God passed over the sins previously committed. He presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Can you tell who this is about? He, Him, His work, what He's done, what He's given. God presented Jesus, Him, as a propitiation through faith in His blood, a propitiation. Big $10 Bible word that we don't even use. And if you do, you'll just be strange. What it means is a substitution. We should have died to death Jesus died. We couldn't live the life Jesus could live. So He did it for us. He was our substitute. He took it all on himself. Because we couldn't. There's nothing good we could do to make it right. There's no way we could perform to make it right. So Jesus performed on our behalf. Grace. I'm going to give you a definition of grace that you'll hear me use for the next 30 years. That's right, 30 years. (laughs) God doing for us on our behalf... What we can never do for ourselves. That's grace. God doing for you, on your behalf, what you can never do for yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself whole. You can't muster up and manufacture the kind of peace that surpasses understanding. You cannot have a joyful satisfaction in life on your own. It is all by grace. God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is why, if you'll go back to that slide, this is why it says in verse 24 that they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. Everything we want is in Christ. Everything we were created to be church is in Christ. Everything this world is pursuing, and they don't even realize they're pursuing, everything they could ever hope and dream of, everything you could ever try to find in your spouse, in your children, in your work, in your hope, in your religion, in your faith, everything you could ever want isn't going to be found outside of Jesus. It's going to be found only in Christ. And the only way we have access to it is by Grace, that's where it starts, in faith. Because if you look at that verse, it says we come into this by grace, through faith, through trust. Faith is not just I believe. Faith is a surrendered trust. It is an action through trust in what Jesus has done, trusting in His blood. That when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. That he said what he meant and he meant what he said. What has separated man from their loving creator has been dealt with. And the time for man to struggle and find himself right before God. And have real peace and joy in his life and her life. All of that is Is in Christ. Paul doesn't stop. See, because what grace does, it means we have nothing to brag about. See, that's how it deals with the elitism. That's how it deals with, because I haven't lived as cleanly as you have, I know sin better than you, and therefore I am more holy and sanctified because I understand the way of Jesus better. Or the inverse of because I haven't lived the way you've lived, I am the holy one. The Jews were saying, because we've had this, uh, you know, relationship with God for you know, I don't know, thousands of years, we're better than Gentiles. That's not gospel. Because grace says we have nothing to brag about. And this is what Paul says. Look at what he says in verse 27. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By works? No. On the contrary. Boasting is excluded by faith. For we conclude. And here's the hard part for many of us. And I realize that. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Apart from the works of law. Man is no longer made right by his own performance. He, man and woman, is made right by trusting in the work of Christ. And what he has done in his performance. Because if I pray harder than you, and that makes me more accepted before God. Or because I'm a preacher, and that makes me more accepted before God. Then I have something to brag about. Oh, you church people. That's excluded. The biggest lie. The biggest lie. That Satan wants to tell the church, in my opinion. Is that grace is dangerous and it needs to be kept in check. Because we take a grace, yes, but position, don't we? Okay, I hear what you're saying, Fred, but what about obedience? What about it? Well, if I'm not obedient, then... All right, what about faith? What is faith? What then is biblical faith? But we take this yes, but position because grace makes us nervous because it's dangerous and it's uncontrollable. And we assume, and we assume, and I believe improperly, we assume that if people realize that they live in grace and they stand in grace and they're saved by grace through faith, that somehow they're going to take advantage of grace. And what I would suggest is they don't understand grace. They didn't understand. I didn't understand what was given to me in Christ. Remember my life first for those who are here? He who's been forgiven much loves much. He who's been forgiven little loves little. Luke seven forty seven. When one realizes the depth and depravity of their sin and their hellish stand that they have and that without god they will be in hell separated from him for eternity and realize that they are not worth anything in and of themselves but god looks on them in mercy and pity and says i made you and i love you and i came to fix what you messed up and i'm going to do what you can't do for yourselves and i'm going to embrace you through jesus christ just trust in this and i will keep you and you will walk with me and you will walk with me forever when they understand that things change inside of them church that's what changed in the church That's what changed the people's lives when they met Jesus was they understood, they encountered this grace. This Jesus touched the untouchable and he loved the unlovable and he healed the unhealable and he accepted the unacceptable and he pursued him. He didn't just wait for him to come. He went to him in the church of Acts. They said, you know, we understand what life is about and so we're going to give it away for people because we understand what we've been given by God and nothing can take that away because we're not even going to dream of walking away from the God who saved our lives. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm I'm not even going to consider that idea. Because there's nobody who can give you what God can give you. There's nobody who can give me what God can and what he has. And where is it found? It's found in Jesus. Go pursue the women. Go pursue the men. Go pursue the alcohol. Go pursue what you want to do. Because you will find, you will find that no one can give you what Christ can give you. Guys, don't pursue it in work. You're not going to find it you're going to find who you are in Jesus Christ if you meditate and think through and go through the word and pray through and commune with him and be a part of community you will find that who you are is in Christ and that is enough. You're not going to find it from the affirmation of your spouse. Not to that degree. And that's what Paul's trying to say. And if we'll stop with the yes but And really live for the yes. Our lives will be different. Our lives will change. Because there will not be a but. There will be Christ. And that's enough. In Romans 5. In Romans chapter 5. Paul said in verse 1. That therefore, and he's still working through this thought. Paul likes the word therefore. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by what? By faith. By a full, complete, surrendering trust that what Christ has done is enough, that His performance is good enough, mine will never be. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also through Him, we have obtained we have obtained access by faith into this what? Grace in which we what? Waffle? Step in and out of? In which we stand. And then we rejoice. In the hope of the glory of God, we stand in grace because we have faith. If we deny faith, we deny grace. Get that? For those who wanted the caveat, there it is. But family, we through faith we have access into that grace. You and I are going to sin. We're going to get selfish. We're going to mess up and talk to our spouses and our children the way that doesn't honor God. We're going to look at what we don't need to... We're going to do what we do. Which is where Paul in Romans 7 talked about that, right? I don't do what I do want to do. I do do what I don't want to do. I can't please God with my mind. I want to, but with my life I can't. I'm just locked in. I'm tied up. He goes through Romans 7. Read it. Last part. And then he comes to the end and he says, What will deliver me from this body of death? He says, I thank God in Jesus Christ, my Lord. A wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Who will free me? Faith in Jesus Christ. Because we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Lest any man should boast, it is a gift of God. For we created in Christ Jesus as his workmanship to do good works which God prepared beforehand. Grace is our foundation. Faith is our reception. Good works is our proclamation. We are not saved by our good works. Good works comes as a result of genuine saving faith. That's why James said... That's why James said faith without works is dead. James is saying genuine faith produces good works. I will show you my faith by my works. That is a far cry from my performance means I'm saved. Christ's performance means I now can perform. Christ's performance on the cross means I now can serve and live fully for God. If you think... I'm trying to drive this home. You're right. Because if we're going to get in on the gospel mission of God, we need to understand our gospel position. And here it is. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. And He condemned sin in the flesh by sending Jesus, just like us, living under this world in this skin. And he presented him as a perpetuation, as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who walk in faith. Your gospel position. If you have surrendered your life to Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ. Your gospel position. Is just that. It's in Christ. And you are freed to no longer trust in your own performance. You are saved by grace because of Christ's performance, not your own. And you are free to praise Him with your life and empowered to live for Him because you live and are positioned in Christ. That is the gospel position. It's in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, get in Christ. Trust Him with your life. Trust him with your life. If he has said he can take care of your eternity, he can take care of your life. Where there isn't peace, there can be peace. Where there isn't love, there can be love. Where there is no joy, there can be joy. We live in a city, we live in a town... People live this way every day. And if we're going to be a people at Williamsburg Christian Church who participate in the gospel mission of God for those who are broken, then we have to be a people who are beginning to understand what position we are in, who understand more our gospel position. And we can live our lives in public With peace and with joy and with love. We can be honest with the brokenness and the pain of this world. And we can groan, but we groan on our tiptoes. Remember last week. We have a gospel posture because we are in a gospel position. And then people see that and they will wonder, how in the world can you live under that? And we can say, not of ourselves, but Jesus.